Good morning. Happy New Year to you. You might be wondering who is this tall, dashingly handsome young man that looks slightly like the guy who normally preaches here. I'm his son. Um, luckily, being a pastor's kid, I get to have the opportunity to speak before you when my dad doesn't feel like it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I am here on break. Uh, a little bit about me. I'm 22. I'm finishing up college at Wheaton College. It's right outside Chicago. I was a football player no longer. Um, we're done with our season now, and I am beat up and injured. And also in the summers, an interesting fact that will come into play later, I'm a bouncer in the downtown nightclub life scene. So <laughs> that, more on that later. Um, but today uh, we're going to be talking about passions that are w- at war within us, at war in each and every one of our hearts. And the, the scripture that we're going to be kind of living in today is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles, please, please turn there. It's going to be towards the end of the New Testament. Um, why this scripture? Why James specifically? And why these three verses? Um, I believe that they're really crucial because it talks about something that we all suffer from. It's passions that are at war within us. And a symptom of this problem is this, that we are having fights and quarrels within ourselves and within the church and within the body, and it's breaking us apart, and it causes dissension, and it causes problems, and it rules each and every one of our lives. So um, this, is, this is what I want to talk about to you today because it's been on my heart, and it's in the Word, and it, it's very emphatic about how important this is to each and every one of our walks. So um, if you'll pray with me. Lord, um, we come before you desperate and broken um, in awe of your mercy and of your will. And, and we realize that you are, you are it. You are what we need. And, and we recognize the depravity of our own hearts. And we lift that before you, Lord. And we ask that, that you, you move in and through us, Holy Spirit, that you speak to us through your word. And that you change us for your glory and your will and your namesake. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, before diving into the scripture, it's really important to understand kind of the background, the context of James and what he's saying. Uh, James is the brother of Jesus. He's extremely close to him, and he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so in the book of James, he's actually writing to the church. It is to the brothers and sisters. He uses that term many times throughout. Um, the only thing is, is that it's very, it's very, it, it, it's very instructional. It's very hard-hitting. And at times, we as Christians can think, well, that's talking about someone else. No, the letter is written directly to you. It's one of the most existential pieces of literature in the Bible. It is specifically to you. It is not to judge others. It is to judge your own heart so that you may go out. It is so that you may take the plank out of your own eyes so that you can help with the specs in your brothers and sisters. It is to us that James writes. And so, I'll read the whole passage and we'll break it apart piece by piece. So, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, verse 1 What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
important part of this verse is, is recognizing that we do have, in fact, quarrels and fights among us, ranging from petty to major. They can be anything from theology to sin to personal preference, and they tear apart the church. You, you've seen it in the church in people arguing over what type of music they prefer, what type of worship they prefer. Even in this own church, you hear there's people who don't understand that why we're in a circle and think that that is affecting the Great Commission and God's will. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a circle. <laughs> now, as you see it in this light, these things don't have any cosmic meaning. They don't have any great effect on what God is doing in the will, and yet they're so important to us that we obsess over them, and we make them into big deals. We make mountains out of molehills spiritually, and it divides our churches, and it divides our lives, and it divides our souls between God and this world, and that's a problem. And what it does, and what it's caused by, is the passions that are at war within us. In chapter 1, James describes the desires that are within us lead to temptation, and that temptation in turn leads to sin, and that sin leads to death. And from there, we realize how depraved we are and how in need we are of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we all have temptations, we all have desires that can take control of us. And those are the passions that are the problem. The word that is used here is hedon, which is the word that we get our word hedonism, to gratify oneself, to seek pleasure, to do what feels good. And often when talking about hedonism in the English language, people think of sex, drugs, alcohol, food, immediate pleasures. And while this is true, the definition is much larger than that in this sense. Hedon does not just focus on those sins and those temptations. It focuses on everything that is temporal, everything that is of this world that we put above God, everything that is not him that we seek to satisfy and fill the void that he is made for. So... They are sensual sins. They are worldly, and they can replace them in an idolistic sense. A better perspective is this. You all know the kind of 200, two, the 2012 conspiracy. World's going to end, mind calendar, whatnot. So say that you took that very seriously, that for some reason, without a doubt, you knew that Jesus was going to come back in 2012. And in that, you're preparing some sort of a bucket list. You want to do this list of things before he comes back because you feel like you'd miss out on the world. I mean, it could be skydiving, going on that vacation you've always wanted to go on, seeing the sights, eating the food. Or in the case of single Virginia wheat males such as myself, getting married so that you can enjoy the pleasures of said marriage. (laughs) Being completely honest, it's... It's, it's across the, the Christian male spectrum. Well, to uh, paraphrase Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, those things that you want to do before that, because you feel like you would somewhat regret them in this world, if, if Jesus came back, you feel like you'd have some sort of regrets for not doing these things. Those are idols. Those are idols in your life, whether you realize them or not. Because... That is the single most important, most joyous, most glorious event that we can possibly conceive of in our Christian faith. And yet, for some reason, we think that we would somehow miss out on that wonderful, joyous experience if we hadn't experienced these simple, temporal, meaningless things. 
And that is an example of how those desires can rule within us without us even being conscious of it. It can cause us to do things that we don't even want to do. Paul resonates with this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do what I do not want to do, and it is the sin that does it within me. Have you ever felt this way? Because I know that I have. Doing what you should not desire, what you know that God doesn't want you to do because you have an insatiable hunger within you. Or, rather, doing what you think God wants you to do. Being legalistic, enforcing things, having a self-righteousness because you feel that that is your call, that he has placed that in your life. And doing that in your right mind something that you wouldn't want to do, not loving a brother or a sister or someone outside of the church as they should be, as Jesus calls us to be. Those desires have been perverted. On to the beginning of verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. In short, you get frustrated when you don't have anything. So frustrated that it brings you to violence. And I know what you're, what you're thinking. It's the same thing that I thought. Well, I don't, I don't murder. I'm not a killer. That's, that's someone else. That's someone who's breaking and entering because they need, need money. That's someone who's frustrated and in a bad situation and, and fires a gun or, or, or kills someone else or even commits suicide because they don't have what they want and they feel with lacking. Well, according to the scriptural definition of what murder is, as Jesus says, if you're so much as angry at a brother or you call him a fool, you are guilty of murder within your own heart. You are worthy of the fires of hell. You, me, and everyone else. So, in that sense, yes, we are all murderers. That is an accurate description of what that frustration causes within us. These desires within us can turn into coveting which is addressed in the following statement, the second part of verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. These desires are perverted into covetousness, even good ones. Most of the time, coveting is thought of in terms of possessions. I want this house, I want this car, I want this boat, etc. And those are things of coveting. You envy those and someone else. And in Scripture, that is, that is seen in Psalm 73. The psalmist is decrying the, the wicked's prosperity. He sees the prosperity of the wicked, and, it, and it, it hurts his walk. It hurts his soul. He doesn't understand it. It's affected his faith. And I, I can totally identify with this sentiment. Why should the less faithful get good things? Why should they be blessed and not I? I, too want power and money and sex and righteousness. I want those things for myself. I want these worldly pleasures. And so do you. We all do. It's the good things of this world. We want to live that carefree life, that good lifestyle, the thing that we see in the media and TVs. And in my own life, I've used other things as substitutes to keep these desires from completely manifesting themselves in my life, in my reality. I find escapism through books and TV shows and movies and video games that have allowed me to indulge while not acting out in my day-to-day life. And there are times where I flirt with the line living in a hedonistic fantasy. This, however, is a lie. That's very much still sin in the biblical definition. It's using other things in the place of God, even if they're in my head, even if they're in my heart, because he's not. And search yourselves 
We all do this. We all can live vicariously through another. We can all dream of what could be and how our lives could be, seeking to worship the created rather than the creator. And that is a sinful reality. Coveting can also manifest itself in things that are not possessions. It can manifest itself in families, relationships, and even spiritual walks. People can be jealous of another's ability to serve, of their knowledge of scripture, of their ability to speak and teach. I know that pervades the pastoral community. I myself have found myself jealous of another man's ability to teach. And it brings down dissension within the church because rather than being joyful of another's gifts and seeking to equip them and support them and serve together with them, you wish to be glorified rather than them. And that can lead to more fights and quarrels in the church and things that do not matter and legalism and judgment and self-righteousness. Looking at other people and seeing a reflection in yourself that you hate. And so you attack them rather than fixing the problem, which is your own, our own depraved hearts. So, to finish up with the scripture, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. How wonderfully contrary is this to the message that has been gaining proper or popularity in recent years? The message that God wishes to bless you and see you prosper in this world, especially financially and materialistically. He wants that new job for you. He wants that promotion. He wants you to get that boat. He wants you to get that new house. He wants you to have the perfect family, the perfect dog, the perfect life, and always sunny and always wonderful. You can have your best life now if you only serve him. You'll earn it. It'll be good. And you can pay a donation with all that new money that you're getting. This is the anti-prosperity gospel, my friends. James is directly speaking to Matthew 7, 7, the popular scripture that many of you may know. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Unfortunately, this beautiful passage has been proof texted by many, including myself, to mean ask him for whatever you want, that God is some wonderful vending machine for prayer. That if you simply ask and you simply seek and you simply persist by knocking, he's going to give you all the desires of your heart. That by following Jesus, it's winning the lottery. It is. It's winning the spiritual lottery. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is not talking about worldly possessions. He talks about worldly possessions in the previous chapter. He talks about how he, as God, provides for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. And he will give them everything that they need from clothing to food. And he says that we must simply ask, seek, and persist in knocking for his will. So that we may do it. So that we may have joy and peace. And so that we may further the kingdom of God. However, in our brokenness, we try to use it for what we want. And not what he wants. It is his will that we should ask for. Not that we shouldn't have our own desires, but they shouldn't control us. An example from my own life. Some time ago, I desired to have a girlfriend. I wanted to feel loved and I wanted to feel accepted. And I got one. Um, I made her an idol, unfortunately. 
by attempting to serve God and immerse myself in him and in his word for her sake, not his. There's an inherent sickness with that. And for a while, I was happy. I was sure of my plan and his will. And things were good. I wasn't truly seeking God, though. And what I wanted to do were good things, mind you. I wanted to prepare to become a good husband, and I wanted to prepare to become a good pastor, for I feel that is my calling. However, ironically, these things were more important than him. These things that were created to serve him, meant and intended to serve him, had become my God rather than God. And thankfully, I did not receive what I want. He withheld that from me. I wanted a wife. And I was taken out of that situation in a blessed, blessed way because of the sickness of the situation would have solidified my idolization for the rest of my life. And many other times I pleaded with God for things, vaporous things that are fleeting and fruitless. Often my pleasures are at the forefront of my mind, my heart, and my prayers. I, like the subject of James' exhortation, am wretched, seeking what harms me and turns me to violence and quarrels. You can see this in the secular world, too. As I mentioned before, I work in the Chicago nightlife. In these clubs and these lounges, I discovered something. They're not selling alcohol or sex or dances or a place. They're selling an idea. And this is the idea. The idea is that if you drink this, if you dress this way, if you are seen in this place with these people, and if you're always seeking what's new and popular and hip, you're going to be fulfilled. And people believe this. They buy into it. They spend thousands of dollars. It's unbelievable how much money is in this. Trying to seek to fill the void. And every weekend, these people come out to satisfy their lusts. And every week they return still hungry with their desires unfulfilled. Continuing this vicious cycle, looking for more. They're at war with themselves. And in this situation, I see that reflected in us. And I see the application of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. She's thirsty and she wants something to drink. And he offers her living water so that she may never thirst again. He is offering us the Holy Spirit, the living water, to satisfy those desires that are at war within us. In the secular world and in our own world, in all kinds of realities. He wants to satisfy those desires. He has the only thing that will satiate us. Only Christ can fill our whole, and only he is meant to be our strength and our portion forever. We are not so different from the children that we once were, fighting over play toys jealous of copycats and of the kids with the good desserts in their lunchboxes. However, in Christ, we have the unique opportunity to put aside our childish ways and ask for his will rather than our passions. Battles will still be fought within us, but we can take heart in that he is doing a good work for us. We are all hungry for the gospel, jealous and fighting with one another because nothing quenches like living water. May we ask sincerely to drink deeply of that living water because that request will never be denied. Jesus promises us that. So, so what? So what, so what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for Bethany? What does this mean for Gunnison? In the personal, for me and you, I believe that one of the things is to, be, to stop being concerned with being right. 
I know it's a struggle in my life that there are many things that don't matter, that don't really point to Christ, that I can get focused on and seeing other people and attack rather than love them. I think that's something that is part of the human condition. It is natural, yes, but it is sinful. And we need to put it down. We need to give it to God. We also need to stop being worried about what we have and what we want because God promises that he will provide for us just like he does for all of nature and all of creation and that we must simply be concerned with seeking his will and he'll take care of the rest. That's an immense amount of trust that he asks. But in that trust, we can find hope and we can find joy and we can find peace. And there's nothing that beats that in the trade. As a congregation, as Bethany, seek to treat each other truly like brothers and sisters. It was wonderful to see during the meet and greet time that there was such a joy in seeing one another. There was such a joy in people just crossing aisles and and ways. And I've seen that grow and progress in this church since I've been gone continue to foster that. That is so important because if you are treating people like brothers and sisters, then you are recognizing not only the depravity in yourself, but in others. And instead of pulling them along in a legalistic or self-righteous fashion, you are walking in faith with them towards Christ in the race that he has called us all to. You are mutually picking up and encouraging one another. Continue to do these things. Also, Think about how much partnership you have with the Christian community within this town. Are we focused on our body or are we focused on the body of Christ? Someone once said that the body of Christ, the bride of Christ is not a harem. There is but one bride. There are many churches with little C's, but there is only one church with a capital C. And yes, we should be focused on this gospel community and grow and progress it but we should be far more concerned with the gospel community at large, the church at large, the church in Gunnison, the church in the world. And that leads us to how we should act within this town and how we should act outside of it. By focusing on our own depravity and identifying with others and not condemning them or pretending that we are somehow less sinful and not totally redeemed by Christ alone, we can become the light of the world We can become the salt of the earth. We can become the city on the hill. We can make our faith attractive to others. We will not be the hypocrites that others see us. We will win souls for Christ by not merely proclaiming the gospel with our lips, but by living it with our very lives, and it will be undeniable. And that will facilitate real, measured, unbelievable change. C.S. Lewis says that our passions are too weak, that we settle for less. We settle for the things of this world rather than the things of God. And if we seek God, then we will not be denied. If we trust in Jesus, then we will be redeemed and sanctified. If he is our prize and we live in his grace as undeserving sinners that we are, who have been redeemed and can live as brothers and sisters and not be ruled by our inferior passions, but only by the zeal that God can provide. This isn't an optional thing. This isn't a thing, well, He struggles with it, but she doesn't. We all share in this, me, you, everybody else, and to quote my father, Mother Teresa. um, We all all struggle with this. It's unfortunate, and it's natural, but again, it's sinful. It's a problem that we all have. And we should take heart in that, 
Because if we all have it, then we can all seek Christ together and we can all mutually encourage each other and we can all work towards him to end this war of passions, to bring peace and unity within us, to stop fighting and quarreling. So in this new year, in 2011, what shall you do? What shall we do? What shall I do? Shall we continue to fight in our hearts and amongst ourselves? Or will we find victory in Christ against the world and unite with one another for his name's sake and for the glory of his kingdom? It's not going to be easy. He doesn't promise that it will. He says the way is narrow and the path is hard. However, we are promised an eternal inheritance that is worth more than you and I can ever conceive. And I guarantee it'll be worth it. So today we're taking communion. I ask that you, with me, prepare your hearts for this. It is a wonderful sacrament. It reminds us of the body and the blood that was shed for us, for our sins, for our depravity, for our problems, for our passions. And through Christ's body and through his blood, we have salvation, we have sanctification, Take these things seriously. Do not take them lightly. Let the sacraments wash over you again or for the first time. Because Christ is always there. And he's always calling us back to him. And he's always calling us to seek his will continuously. It's not a one-time event. You do this over and over. And he gave us these sacraments to remind us of what he has called us to. So prepare your hearts as Ryan prays. And if you need prayer, myself... My father, um, Ryan and Crecia will be on the outsides. And I've also been told to uh, direct you to the prayer wall. There are people who are praying for those prayer requests every week. So if you feel like you need a large amount of prayer by a lot of dedicated people who love you and cherish you as brothers and sisters, then write it up on there. I love you all. I pray for you. I hope that we can continue as brothers and sisters, and I hope that you're not discouraged by this because there is great hope in Jesus Christ. We have this problem, but he is the solution. So may you be blessed.